0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me this morning, if you would, in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 7. Perhaps somebody here is chagrined that we are in Leviticus today. I poke fun. I tease Leviticus a lot. I I tell folks that it's not it's in my top 66 favorite books of the Bible, but it doesn't make my top 65, okay? And that's another way of saying it's a tough book, all right? My least favorite, if you want to put it that way. But it is God-breathing inspired, and it is uh not one jot or tittle will pass away. And uh, even though we're not Levites, the other night I said, you know, I'm never going to be a Levitical priest. I'm never going to offer a burnt offering. And you could follow that up with, why do I care about a burnt offering or a sin offering or trespass offering? I'm never going to slaughter an animal or pour out its blood or do any of that. I care because God put it in the Bible. And uh, it was not just there for the Levitical instructions, it's there for us. The things revealed belong to us and our children forever. So we need to learn the doctrine, we need to make the applications, and then we can uh, praise God all the more that we are New Testament believer priests with the uh, finished work of Jesus Christ once and for all. So, Let's open with a word of prayer and commit our time for the glory of Jesus Christ, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you once again thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for grace and truth, and calling upon your faithfulness to bless our time of study on this day. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We're also testing the microphone, so if you hear some pops and crackles, um, don't be shocked. <laughs> okay, we had some last Sunday. We thought we had it fixed, and they were fixed. We had no pops or crackles for Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. Things were great until the funeral service for uh, for Andy on Friday afternoon, and then the pops came back worse than ever. So uh, we're testing out some new equipment today, and we're going to keep on doing it. It'd be trial and error. Uh, people on YouTube can even watch and have some fun with us because I've got a spare belt pack up here. I've got a spare headpiece, a spare cable, and we're just going to swap out uh, swap out parts till we make sure that it works. All right, Leviticus chapter 7. I also want to take uh, just a couple minutes to uh, highlight a, a couple of items that uh, most of us won't even be familiar with, but it's good to get to know. Um, so Leviticus chapter 7. And um, if you weren't here on Wednesday or Thursday, you haven't seen this yet perhaps, but there's a lot of coloring that I've done in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. That's for my sake, to try to keep things straightened out between the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, trespass offerings, and all the rest. Um, but on both of those nights, Wednesday and Thursday, uh, Glenn was observing some some problems with the Hebrew text and the problem was he was losing the place of where I was reading where he was reading because he likes to follow along in the Hebrew when I'm reading from the English and these chapters actually present a problem with that because the versification is all off and so in case you're not aware of that or if you care um, I'll show you some of the things here we won't take a ton of time with this but when you open it up um, with, with multiple panels. So you have the New American Standard Bibles on the left. You have your uh, Biblia Hebraica Stutargensia in the, in the middle. That's the Hebrew text, the standard Hebrew text. And then the Septuagint, the Greek translation is there on the right. And this is a a nice way to see where they line up in the, in parallel, where they line up. And and when the versification is off, Logos will help you keep it straight. And that's, this is a marvelous feature. So you'll see it here. This is Leviticus 7, Leviticus 7 and verse 1. And um, also a couple of other items. This bar across the top, this bar right across the top here, um, sometimes it's present and sometimes it's absent. And if you notice that it's absent, you can toggle it on and off in the control panel. It's called the locator bar. So there it's off and it just toggles on and off either with the control panel or with the uh, the keyboard shortcut, which is Control-Shift-L. So you can just toggle it on and off as, as much as you want. Um, I like to have it on because I like to have it just to remind myself of where I am. It also provides a couple of extra navigation aids uh, to, uh, to work your way through a chapter or work your way through a book, uh, as the case may be. So in this case, uh, we have Leviticus 7.1 in the New American Standard. It is also Leviticus 7.1 in the Hebrew text. But in the Hebrew text, I mean in the in the Greek Septuagint, it's um, chapter 6 and verse 31. They didn't, they, they didn't get to the chapter division yet in the Septuagint. They're just going to string out uh, chapter 6 even longer. And you'll notice that if we back up a verse. So... Um, We back up a verse, chapter in in the New American Standard Bible, Leviticus 6.30, which lines up with the Septuagint, Leviticus 6.30. But in the Hebrew, it's Leviticus 6.23. And this is why Glenn was all out of sorts trying to to find these verses, because Leviticus 6.23, what happened to Leviticus 6.24, 25, 26, 27? You know, those verses aren't there. Why aren't those verses there? So it's worth looking through, and in, in fact, you'll find that the, the difference there between the English and the Hebrew is seven verses consistently all the way through, even while the, uh, the Greek matches up real well. Uh, if you go to the top of the chapter, here's a shortcut for you. Just click on the, the word there, chapter 6. It takes you to the top of the chapter. That's why I like having that locator bar open. So I go to the top of the chapter, and I find here that uh, Leviticus 6.1... Is actually in the Hebrew, it's chapter five and verse twenty. Now are we really confused? <laughs> but it matches up with a Septuagint, so that's nice. Um, everything stays the same if we go to ch- if we start with chapter five. Now we're clear. Everything is on in agreement in chapter five, and the the English, the Hebrew, the Greek, it's all synchronized in chapter five. The problem is as we get to the end of chapter five is when some different things start happening here. So in the, uh, in the English, chapter 5 only has 19 verses. And that's where it's going to cross into chapter 6 and verse 1. But the Hebrew doesn't do that. The Hebrew continues with chapter 5 and verse 20. Chapter 5 and verse 21. And so if you're not aware of these versification issues, it can be, it can be pro- uh, problematic also. If you're reading a commentary, if you're reading a um, uh, an Old Testament commentary like Kyle and Delich, for example, you will very frequently end up lost because the Kyle and Delich is going to be using the, the the Hebrew numbers, so they're going to be talking about uh, you know uh, Leviticus five and verse twenty one, and and you're you're going to think they're crazy because your Leviticus doesn't have twenty one verses in in chapter five, so thankfully, thankfully we have the um, the software, which keeps these things in perfect sync and tells us what verse we 're in at the time, even if we don 't know what verse we 're in at the time, it tells us what verse we need to be in to to show you the uh, the Hebrew or the greek that 's underneath the actual english english verse that we're we 're using also we have these marvelous um, phrases. Leviticus is very redundant in a lot of applications, and in that redundancy, Leviticus shows us some really, um, it blesses us to help us show paragraph structure, to help us show chapter structure in different things. And so we have these catchphrases like, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying. And every time you have that, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you realize, okay, this is a brand new uh, paragraph heading. This is a brand new section heading, see? And you can spot it in the Hebrew. The Ydaber Yahweh El Moshe, Lemor, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, or you can spot it in the Greek where it 's Kai len Kurios Pros Mo Lagoon. You, you can just spot those and and they 're just so helpful, keeping uh, the paragraph divisions where they belong and uh, and so forth all right, so this is kind of a uh, a long way uh, to explain this, but Glenn was asking, and I was puzzled, and we were trying to hash it out Thursday night. So, yeah, the versification is different. Most of the verses are all there. Occasionally, there'll be a verse missing out of the Septuagint, or there'll be extra verses in the Septuagint, and you wonder, how did they drop out from the Hebrew? And that's a whole different exercise on its own when you get involved with uh, Old Testament textual criticism. All right, that's all I'm going to say on that. Let's drag that over there. And let's open up our notes for this morning. This is day 51 in our Through the Bible series, and so uh, 51 days into the calendar year, and uh, how many more that is to go. We finished seven weeks, we've got 45 more to go, so uh, we're we're off and we're doing well. Uh, We're up to full speed now, and things are going great. Let's uh, cover what we're going to cover today. Basically we're going to cover 11 chapters of Leviticus today in between uh, uh, across all four of the sessions that we're going to be here uh, filming. So for this hour, Leviticus chapter 7 and Leviticus chapter 8. If you missed last week, if you missed Wednesday night and Thursday night, we started uh, Leviticus and we gave the first three chapters on Wednesday, we gave the second three chapters on Thursday, Days 49 and 50 in the in the reading plan. And so in covering those first six chapters, we've covered five uh, uh, offerings that, that were part of the Levitical system. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. And we should now be absolutely solid on all... I can't even say that with a straight face. We should be absolutely solid on all five of those offerings, okay? Which we're not, but at least we have the overview. Okay? We have the overview. We understand that most of them were involved killing animals. They were blood offering sacrifices. They were offerings by fire. And even the one that didn't involve the animals, the grain offering was still an offering by fire. Because the handful, the memorial portion of that grain uh, which was dedicated to the Lord was to be thrown on the altar, on the bronze altar there where the sacrifices took place. So those are the first five chapters of Leviticus. And then when we get to chapters 6 and 7, we find that there are additional instructions that are provided. And the additional instructions go deeper than what the first five chapters cover. And really they tend to focus more for the priest's awareness, for the for the priest's usage and their applications of what they're doing. So this is what we're going to see here in the first ten verses of chapter 7. Uh, additional instructions for the guilt offering. These instructions are primarily for the officiating priests, whereas the earlier descriptions were centered more on the uh, the person bringing the offering and that's true for for the average Jewish person for the average Jewish husband or father and the man that was bringing an animal to be sacrificed he had to know what to do because he wasn't done he he couldn't just walk up to the tabernacle and drop off the the sheep and say you know have a nice day he was actively involved in that offering so far as He had to put his hand on the sheep's head to identify with that substitute, to say, I'm the sinner, but this substitute is taking my place. And by laying on of hands, he would then slit the animal's throat. The priest didn't kill the animal. The offerer killed the animal. Okay? except for the birds. That was an exception. Uh, If they were bringing the turtle doves or the small birds, then the priests were the ones that would wring the neck and and kill the animal. But in most cases, it was the offerer that would kill the animal and then pour out the blood and then chop up the the pieces. What the priests and the Levites would be busy with then would be taking those animal parts, putting them on the altar. Because if you weren't a priest, you had no business touching that altar. Okay. then arranging the fire, arranging the animal pieces on the offer, taking the blood that was to be applied either inside the tent or outside on the, on the altar itself. Some sacrifices had, had to have the blood smeared on the, on the horns of the altar. In other cases, the blood was taken inside the holy place and it was sprinkled before the veil seven times before the veil. So if all of these details are still swimming around in your head and you feel totally lost, that's all right. Me too, okay? We, we, we glean what we glean, we learn what we learn, and then we, we realize, wait a minute, there is actual doctrine that's embedded in this. The shadows convey truth. And what we learn from Hebrews is that the shadows is what they function under. The substance belongs to Christ. And we in Christ are the ones that function in the substance before the Father's throne. So, this is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. It is... Uh, most holy. And I love the phrase um, again, I don't want to do a whole lot on the Hebrew here. Or we've just run out of time. But the phrase as it's found there so you have Zoth Torah. This is the law. This is the Torah. This is the Torah of the sin offering. So Zoth Torah Asham, And then it says oh, I've got to spread that out even more. Put that on the same line. Can I get it on one line? There we go. Get it on one line right there. So you have the Kadesh Kadashim. Kodesh, Kodesh Karashim, holy of holies. It is the most holy. And this is the it's like song of songs. It's, it's the preeminent. It's the greatest. It is the, the pinnacle. This is how superlative uh, expressions are, are crafted. So this is the Torah of the guilt offerings. It is most holy. In the place where they slay the burnt offering, they are to slay the guilt offering, and he shall sprinkle his blood around the altar. Then he shall offer from it all its fat, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys. So don't want to miss any fat. There's fat on various parts of this animal, and all of the fat belongs to the Lord. The priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in the holy place, it is most holy. Remember, other than the burnt offering because the burnt offering is a whole burnt offering, everything goes to the Lord. nothing is eaten okay? the The hide would be set apart for different purposes, but the, the 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 meat itself was not eaten by anybody. it was all given to the Lord. But for the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering, these were fellowship offerings. These were opportunities for, for believers to not only bring the offering, but then to, to feast afterwards, right? It's like having a church service followed by a potluck. You get to feed your soul, you get to feed your body. For the, for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and they got to fellowship with the priests and the Levites and learn Bible doctrine and study and be taught, What is the substance that lies beneath this animal ritual, that lies beneath these shadows that we're functioning in? And so the idea of eating is is very much a part of this, as well as drinking. Because there are drink offerings as well, the libations that take place. That wine was a feature of these libations in these offerings that would be poured forth. So every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy." The guilt offering is like the sin offering. There is one Torah, there is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And as we study the doctrine of atonement, we've mentioned several times the in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament theology of atonement, the aspect is one of covering. The verb kafir is to cover. kipper is a covering. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement, but it is the day for the sins to be covered, not removed, not taken away. Because the, the animal ritual can't take away sin. Animal ritual only covers. When the, when the atonement is made, when the, the covering is in place, then God's wrath and God's judgment can pass over, right? We studied that under the doctrine of Passover. When, when he saw the blood on the doorpost and lintel, then the angel of death would pass over and not inflict his wrath. The same concept applies with Day of Atonement, with Yom Kippur. The idea that the Old Testament doctrine of atonement is one of covering, as opposed to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. As Jesus comes to the Jordan to be baptized, what did John the Baptist say? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the whole covering operation ends at Calvary. And so all those Old Testament saints, all those believers that were saved, Moses and David and Daniel, every Old Testament saint, their sins were covered, so they died, they didn't go to heaven, they died, they went to Abraham's bosom, they, went to, they descended to Sheol. They were provided a place of comfort and rest until such time. And when Jesus uh, descended as well, he then ascended and he didn't go alone. When he ascended, he led many captives captive. He took captivity. He, he led Abraham's bosom to, to glory. So much so now that paradise isn't in Sheol anymore. It used to be. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. They descended to Sheol. But today, paradise is in heaven. Paradise is in the third heaven. It is in the presence of God. And so a whole relocation of Abraham's bosom took place when Jesus Christ was, was resurrected and led captivity captive. Anyway, there's so much doctrine in that and it all centers on the aspect of atonement. Also the priest who presents any man's burnt offering, that priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has presented. Likewise, every grain offering that is baked in the oven and everything prepared on a pan or on a griddle shall belong to the priest who presents it. The very first pancake breakfast we studied Thursday night. Every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall belong to all the sons of Aaron, to all alike. So that gets us through the first 10 verses there of Leviticus 7. Moving on to verses 11 through 36. Additional instructions for the peace offering are now provided. And a significant concentration of this expression, shall be cut off from his people, is featured here. And so I wanted to put some notes in this chapter related to this idiom, shall be cut off from among his people. So you'll spot it as we read our way through. But you're going to spot it in verse 20, 21, 25, and 27. Four separate times the phrase is used, shall be cut off from among his people. What's that about? What does that mean? And you're going to find a lot of disagreement on that even among the rabbis that that would argue back and forth. Is this something that, that humans do in a judicial application or is this something that God does in a divine discipline application? Is this something that happens immediately or is this something that happens in the coming days and months and years and generations? How does this work? And I think we've got a good survey on this I'm going to share with you here this morning to demonstrate what God does with respect to this. Alright, so this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings which shall be presented to the Lord. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving he shall offer unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil and cakes of well stirred fine flour mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. How about that? Okay, most cases it had to be unleavened. But in these peace offerings for thanksgiving, they could be leavened as well. Of this he shall present one of every offering as a contribution to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offerings. As for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it over until morning. Again, you don't get the doggy bag, you don't take it home with you. You are sacrificing it there, and you are worshiping there with the priests, with the Levites. You are partaking of the blessing, and leave it there. You're not taking it home. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day, what is left of it, it may be eaten. So you're allowed leftovers in this case. Okay, because it was a votive offering, it was a free will offering you didn't have to bring it, you wanted to bring it, so you brought it and if you want to if you want to have leftovers the next day that 's fine, okay, But on the third day, burn it with fire i 'll tell you the simpler thing if it was me, I'd just eat it, make sure it was gone, and then don't worry about burning the rest with fire <laughs> all right well let 's get through some more of this we've got to cover seven and eight today um Verse 18 tells us, if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his uh, peace offerings should ever be eaten on the third day, he who offers it will not be accepted, it will not be reckoned to his benefit, it shall be an offensive thing, and the person who eats of it will bear his own iniquity. And I hope as we're working our way through Leviticus, we recognize how serious this is, that the, God is, 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 has the high standard of how he may be approached that uh, you can't just do any old thing that seems good to you, or that, well, you know, it gives me a nice vibe, so God must also be pleased with it. That's not how it works, okay? And we, we should have learned that from day one, back with Cain and Abel, when Cain brought the offerings that God had no pleasure for, that God is holy, and if he is to be approached by any sinner, it's got to be on God's terms in, in the way that God so stipulates. And uh, we see the pattern here. Otherwise, it's an offensive thing. And instead of a sweet-smelling savor, it's a stink and he wants nothing to do with it. Also, the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten. should be burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat such flesh. And I hope we start to also pay attention. that The distinction here is clean versus unclean. And that is totally alien to us in the church age, right? Because we're typically, we're trying to think in terms of, am I in fellowship or am I out of fellowship? Am I spiritual or am I carnal? If I'm carnal, I need to confess my sins. And if I confess my sins, He's faithful and just to forgive me my sins, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so that for church age believers, we're either in fellowship or out of fellowship, walking in the light or walking in darkness. And, and it's as easy as, as 1st John 1 9 to be back in fellowship again and come to church and learn and grow. Things are great. We don't have to slaughter an animal. Okay. We don't have to go through a ritual process that involves animal sacrifice, that also involves uh, water and oil and and other purification materials. There's none of that in the church age. That's all shadows. We function in the substance. And so I think it's also useful for us to realize there were elements of things that are unclean that are not necessarily sinful. That if you buried your uh, loved one, if you were involved in a funeral, right, like Friday and Saturday, back-to-back funerals this week, If if you're taking care of business in that term and you're touching a dead body you're ceremonially unclean. You didn't commit any sins but you're ceremonially unclean and you're not going to enter the the solemn assembly. You're not going to enter into the tabernacle. You're not going to take part in Passover any of the other solemn uh, feasts of the Lord. Even just touching such things leaves you unclean when anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or unclean animal or unclean detestable thing, and then eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which belongs to the Lord, oh, look out, that person shall be cut off from his people. And this is where we have to deal with this expression because I think it's abused or it's misunderstood in different ways. So let's look at that again. It's it's not an issue of spirituality or carnality, being in fellowship or out of fellowship. The issue is clean or unclean, on a ritual basis, a ceremonial basis. Okay. The uh, the verb kara'f. This is the verb to cut, and uh, sometimes it's used literally. If you cut a rope, or you cut a tent uh, tent cord, or you ton, you can cut things. Right? You can cut animals to pieces. It's a verb that means to cut, but it's also used. In an idiomatic phrase in several places. Uh, we've seen it in Genesis already. Um, we've seen it in other places. It's, in fact, it's the primary interv- uh, 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 idiom when you are uh, ratifying a covenant. You will actually cut a covenant. You will carath a, uh, a bereath. You will cut a covenant. And that's the idiom that's used there. But it's also used uh, with respect to um, divine discipline, divine judgment. Such as the, the the most ultimate of the of the judgments that are imaginable, separation from the holy congregation of the holy people of the holy God. That's what it's about, okay. And and we don't have it in the New Testament. It's not a feature of the church, although we have something a little bit comparable in the sense that in church discipline. The pinnacle is uh, expulsion from the uh, assembly. If he doesn't listen to the one, if he doesn't listen to the two or three, tell it to the whole church. If he doesn't listen to the church, then uh, he has to be removed from the congregation. And, and that's the, um, we don't execute anybody, okay? But we remove them from the congregation. Now, with respect to being cut off from the covenant nation of Israel, how does this function? Do, do people do this or does God do this? Here's the clue, God does it. Okay? and he does he may not do it immediately, but he is going to do it long term, and he is going to do it uh, for all eternity and we 'll see that here as well. so this idiom is used once in genesis genesis seven fourteen An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from his people. he has broken my covenant now, This is the chapter where circumcision is given and the statement is made, it's, in fact, it's a prophecy. It's a statement of, of a future event. It's not ordering the Jewish people to execute every uncircumcised male, but it's a statement that God knows who they are. And uh, if they expect eternally to abide in these eternal blessings as a part of the covenant nation of Israel, they need to participate in the covenant expectations. It's used three times in Exodus about eating unleavened bread for seven days. And whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So for that seven-day feast, it's a pretty severe penalty for eating something leavened. Well, God is a holy God, and He's expecting His holy nation to function under His holy laws. And this is the standard. Shall be cut off. Likewise in chapter 30 and chapter 31, But Leviticus is where this idiom really takes off. And we have it four times here in chapter 7. It comes back, uh, four times again in chapter 17, 18, 19, a bunch of times in chapters 20. And in those cases, what we're going to get into the, the spectacular, uh, you know, sexual stuff that we're going to get into related to the, the perversions and, uh, the wrong, um, relationships there. So stay tuned. Jacob Milgram has my favorite um, exposition on this idiom and it's found in the Inker Yale Bible Commentary in uh, the, uh, his, the Leviticus volume there. So I don't know I'm going to read the entire thing to you guys, but I want to highlight at least a little bit the uh, expression that's here. If I have, there it is, Kareth. Jewish exegesis unanimously holds that Kareth is a divine penalty. So they they had unanimity on that. It's not something that Moses would do or man would do. It's a divine penalty. But in disagreement concerning its exact nature, among the major views are the following, childlessness and premature death. The idea, remember, conveying that name forward was, was huge. And if a man died without a child, then his brother was expected to father a child so that that name would continue, so the name would not be cut off from the, uh, the nation of Israel. A second view, death before the age of 60. Uh, a third view, death before the age of 52. You see where they would start to nitpick and they would start to try to refine what earlier rabbis would say. But I tell you, Rashi was a big one as far as the the uh, rabbinic traditions are concerned. Uh, number four, being cut off through the extirpation of descendants. And uh, Ibn Ezra uh, addressed this in his commentary on Genesis 17, four, uh, 14. Then they got even more bizarre. At death, the soul too shall die and will not enjoy the spiritual life of the hereafter. You know, loss of salvation. Wait a minute. Where, how, how are we getting this? Now I would point out too, by the way, that it's very possible for a believer to have eternal life to be saved and still be cut off. In which case, in the resurrection, he does not enjoy the eternal blessings of identifying with the Jewish people. It's as if he's become a a Gentile, uh, a a people-less existence in in the millennium. Uh, At death... uh, I said that one, number five... Um, yeah, Maimonides in the Middle Ages, Rambon. Yeah, there's other... I think some of the rabbis in the Middle Ages got a little... <laughs> they got involved with Kabbalah, they got involved with mysticism and a whole bunch of other awful things. All right. Most moderns, to the contrary, define Kareth either as excommunication or as death by man, which is interesting. So the moderns kind of depart from what all of the ancient rabbis knew that it was divine, it was, it was by the hand of God that the Kareth would take place. Interestingly, so too do the sectaries of the Dead Sea, the Qumran community, that sect at, the, uh, the, at Qumran. In the event, the latter theory can be discounted as soon as the loci of careth are held up to view. In other words, you look at the whole spectrum of Kareth as it's used in the Old Testament. All of them fall into the category of Fos, not Jus. Anybody like Latin? The, the Latin precedent for different uh, judicial... In other words, they are deliberate sins against God, not against man. As the cardinal postulate of the priestly legislation is that sins against God are punishable by God, not by man. It follows that the punishment of kareth is executed solely by the deity. 19 cases of kareth in the Torah, and they can be subsumed under the following categories. And this is, I eat this stuff up, because this is what we do, right? We, 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 we survey the whole breadth of Scripture, everything the Bible has to say about a particular topic, and then we categorize them, we classify them, we, we combine the ones together that are, that are combined, and, and so forth. So uh, the categories of violating a sacred time, uh, sacred substance, purification rituals, illicit worship, illicit sex, like I say, we've got that coming up in Leviticus, Thus, the rabbinic view that kareth is a divine penalty is upheld. So men aren't going to be doing it. God's going to be doing it. It's his judicial uh, decree that comes forth from his own, uh, his own justice. As for the exact nature of kareth, two of the five options registered above command attention, the extirpation of, uh, of offspring, meaning that the offender's line is terminated in contrast to the death penalty inflicted by man, Uh, kareth is not necessarily directed against the person of the sinner he may live a full life or an aborted one his death may need not be immediate as would be the case of his execution were the responsibility of a human court and uh, sometimes god leaves even with a sin and a death god will leave a, a believer alive longer if it serves to warn other believers against following that example All right. This also goes into the idea of X number of days and then the Y number of days, the Z number of days, if the judgment function of God shortens or lengthens the uh, the designated lifespan. And then I think... Uh, I think this author is on target as well when he brings in passages like Psalm 109. May his posterity be cut off. May their name be blotted out in the next generation. That is dealing with the descendants. is dealing with a line. That's not going to be a family line that proceeds. And if some of this is lost to us, then it's a good thing we're learning about tribes and clans and families and houses because that's entirely how Israel was structured. And so a judgment like this is consistent with, uh, with that. That the name of the deceased may not disappear from his kinsmen. That's why you have the lever at marriage to keep the name going. But so many of these other judgments talk about blotting out the name. May the Lord cut off the one who does all his descendants. We have these expressions here. Perhaps the most striking to me, by the way, is the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. When you're counting the 77s, from the issuing of a decree until Messiah the Prince, there will be 69 sevens. After the 69th seven, Messiah the Prince will be cut off and have nothing. Then the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the sanctuary and the temple it's uh, and will come with a flood. This is the, the powerful prophecy of Daniel 9 that sets apart the first 69 weeks, the 70th seven that's yet to come, the coming tribulation, but the judgment of the Messiah, Messiah the Prince, will be cut off, will be karath is the term that's used there. And that's, I want to do more work on that. That's, um, I, mean, I think next time I teach Daniel, I'm going to have a, a different perspective on the karath, the karath that's, uh, that's used there. All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and let that go for now. I'm still in chapter 7, right? We've got to get to chapter 8. All right. By the time we wrap up chapters 6 and 7, we have given the additional details that need to be given for all five of the sacrifices that are in the first five chapters. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. Okay? Are you tired of hearing those? Learn all five of them. Learn what they're called. In fact, if you want, learn Hebrew words for them. Learn Greek words for them. Then you're really going to be puzzled. Because the peace offering in Hebrew, the shalom, the the peace offering in Hebrew is actually rendered as soteria, salvation, in the Greek Septuagint. And that that makes me ask even more questions. So we have the summary statement in verses 37 and 38. This is the law of the burnt offering, the law of the lola, the law of the grain offering, the mincha, and the sin offering, the chata'oth, and the guilt offering, the amath. And the, and the ordination offering. And the sacrifice of peace offerings. That's the Zavach uh, Shavu... Uh, I forget. <laughs> Shalom, something like that. When the Lord commanded Moses at Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to present their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So there's the mountain and there's the wilderness and there's the setting for these things as they take place. And we know that they camped there at that mountain for a year. We know that they camped there for a year because we saw the, the, the Passover after the Passover when they left Egypt. So it's been an entire year. And Moses went up on that mountain a couple times for 40 days and then he came back down. And meanwhile, uh, when he came down after that second time, they had tabernacle instructions and they had to begin the process of, of constructing that tabernacle, which is how the book of Exodus Came to an end, and so now we're essentially we're at this hinge moment in between Exodus and what follows. There's very little narrative in in Leviticus. There's very little narrative in Numbers, but we'll, we'll spot it as we as we get to it. All right, which brings us now to Leviticus chapter eight, and in a lot of ways um, we have a uh, another indicator from the text. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "All right, so we got a new section." That's uh, that's set before us. It's different from all of the uh, prescriptions that are given related to sacrifices. Now we're going to center on the, the the sacrificers, the priests, the men that are going to be bringing all these offerings. So, uh, and this is going to uh, take us through chapters eight, nine, and ten. So uh, we got seven and eight this hour. We got nine, ten, and eleven next hour. Like I say, we're going to cover, in our four teaching sessions today, we're going to cover about 11 chapters of, of Leviticus. So in chapter 8, the priesthood is consecrated. In chapter 9, the priesthood begins their ministry. And in chapter 10, the priesthood is defiled. They lose the first two uh, in, in the, the, the oldest sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abi, who are going to be struck by God. And it doesn't take long, does it? You know, I think this is the human pattern, right? Adam and Eve, how long were they... How long were they in the garden before they fell into sin? We don't know, but it seems to be a pretty short time, isn't it? And then the exodus. How long did it take after they walked through the Red Sea? How long did it take for them to start grumbling and wanting to go back to Egypt? It didn't take long. Okay? Same thing with these priesthood. I mean, they get ordained, they get consecrated in chapter 8, they start working in chapter 9, and Nadab and Abihu are struck dead in chapter 10. It doesn't take long. And I hope that we pay attention to these warnings because they're still applicable today in the church age. And because it doesn't take long for a believer to start drifting from the Word, to stop being a disciple, to become conformed to this age, just like any unbeliever out there. All right. The consecration of Aaron and his sons occurred in full view of the entire congregation of Israel. This was a public event. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments of the and the anointing oil, and the bowl for the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And when it says assemble all the congregation, you know what I think that means? I think that means assemble all the congregation. That's right. And so we got to discuss, you know, is this three million people standing here? Is this A smaller number of people standing here. How many people are standing here and how do they all hear Moses? Okay, I'm not doubting any of it. God can magnify voices and three million people could stand here. A billion people could stand here. I don't care. God has the power to have Moses heard in everything that's said and everything that's done. They can see what's happening. Okay, But we will discuss the textual reasons why that three million number is probably not right and why it is that we're going to make those textual adjustments in Numbers chapter 1 and Numbers chapter 26. In any event, assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did, just as the Lord commanded him, when the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. Then Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and washed them with water. He put the tunic on him, girded him with a sash, you know, this is interesting. Washed them with water. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> were, they, were they buck naked? What was going on here? I don't know. I'm just reading it. Washed them with water, put the tunic on him, girded him with a sash, clothed him with a robe, put the ephod on him, and girded him with the artistic band of the ephod with which he tied it to him. Then he placed the breastpiece on him. In the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim. They had been missing in an earlier chapter, chapter 39. We wondered why they weren't mentioned. But they were crafted. They, they are present, assuming that they were crafted things and not just uh, stones that were given from heaven or uh, provided by God by some miraculous fashion. In any event, um, they were placed in the breast piece. There was a special pocket in the breast piece where the, the two stones could be placed. He also placed the turban on his head, and on the turban at its front he placed the golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord had committed and Moses. We observed that too at Exodus. We said, hey, it's called a turban in one chapter, it's called a crown in another chapter, what's up with that? Well, now we find out it's the plate on the front side of the turban that turns it into a crown. So now we know. Took the anointing oil, anointed the tabernacle and all that was on it, and consecrated them. Remember, the verb for anointed is is, means smear. He's smearing, okay? But anointing sounds nicer. (laughs) Smearing, Christ is the anointed one. He's the smeared one, okay? Anointed sounds better. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. But it means anointed. It means set apart, consecrated, identified as holy for God's purpose really this message defines all of the book of leviticus it's about the holiness of god and how unholy sinners can be made holy or reckoned as holy and and stand before him without without death i'll get to some of these later verses here as well but um in point two in the outline, the consecration of Aaron and his sons occurred in the full view of the entire congregation of Israel. I think that's critical. And I think that we have similar things in the New Testament, similar things today uh, with respect to ordinate, ordaining a pastor today. 1 Timothy 4 verses 14 and 15. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. Paul is talking to the young man Timothy here. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. So there is plural elders that are involved laying on hands of this young man as he's called into ministry. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. The congregation watches these young pastors grow up. These congregations observe it, they observe the younger years, they observe the the, the middle ages. they observe the older years and, and everything in between. Watching the pastor grow up so the uh, congregation can be encouraged that man, if that knucklehead can grow up, we all can grow up. look at this there 's provision and there 's encouragement in each step of the way. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching persevere in these things as you do this you will ensure salvation that's experiential salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you timothy's obviously already a believer he's already saved positionally but to be saved experientially from the the power of sin to be delivered from the temptations that have victory in the christian walk that's the experiential salvation we get focused on and you need a faithful shepherd to uh, to set that by way of example in full observation 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's a matter of public record, okay? If a young man like Jeremiah says, I think I might have the pastor-teacher gift, well, then I'm going to announce that to the entire congregation, and we're going to start praying. And we're going to love that young man, and whether he's a pastor or not, whether he becomes one down the road or never does, but each step of the way, we're going to be praying for that young man, and it's a matter of public record. See, and it's kind of fun to watch him, because I was, I was, a, I was 21 years old when I first met Ralph, and, and uh, it's, it's bringing back some memories now with uh, some different things. 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... See, seminary training should be in the local church, and it should be with everybody taking part, with every believer learning. There's no body of doctrine that we say, okay, church members, you, you, you're not entitled to this, or you, you don't deserve this, or you, you wouldn't understand it anyway. We're just going gonna to take these pastors in training, we're going to send them to this special seminary, and, uh, and they're going to come back with this secret knowledge. And it's like, like the Gnostics, it's just horrible, Okay. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. And I love this. Because frankly, most, apost- most uh, seminars today are apostate. These men go off and they come back and they've got awful doctrine and theology and they're just three times mixed up and I'd rather have them train where everybody can hear what they're learning. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So... Timothy trains, Paul trains the men that he trains, Timothy trains the men that he trains, Titus trains the men that he trains. It just goes on and on and on and on. Yesterday I got to meet a man that Mike Smith is training at, at Country Bible Church in Brenham. And that's how it goes, okay? And it goes on and on and on like that. It does not say, go to Rome and make sure you have Peter's uh, apostolic succession. Okay? That's, that's not in the Bible. That was made up later by the Roman church. And it's all spread out throughout the church. Every every lampstand on planet earth today should be training the next generation of pastor teachers in full public view. So Moses supervised the elaborate ordination ritual for Aaron and his four sons. All four get ordained. Even uh, we don't know yet that Nadab and Abihu are going to die in two more chapters. There are four sons of Aaron that are getting ordained here. And Moses is the supervisor. Part of that too, I consider, is consequences of his own rebellion, consequences of his own attempts to weasel out at the burning bush, when he would try to get you know somebody else to take his place. So that's this is how Aaron got promoted, got assigned to be his partner in the Exodus, and how Aaron is selected now to be the to be the high priest. And otherwise, we'd be calling it the Mosaic uh, priesthood instead of the Aaronic priesthood in uh, in these things. But it still is known as the Mosaic covenant. And that's important. We want to uh, observe the distinction that's found between the mediator and between the high priest. Because Moses is the mediator. If he wasn't mediating this covenant, if he wasn't uh, administering the, the oil, uh, he, he's the mediator that, that is, uh, mashach, that is um, anointing Aaron and his sons. So we can pay attention to these things as well. All right. Spiritual gifts and ministries are appointed by the sovereignty of God. We want to be clear on this. These guys, it's the sovereignty of God that's calling them as the priests and nobody else. Um, Some of the others, Kohath and some others, are going to start rebelling here shortly. They're going to think that they're entitled to be priests too. What makes Aaron so special? Because God said so, that's why. Okay? The sovereignty of God for gifts and ministries. Hebrews 5, verses 4 and 5. No one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. And I think not only is that a testimony of grace, but it's a testimony of double grace. Because, uh, you know, in a sense, would Aaron have been called had Moses not been, you know, weaseling out at the the burning bush? I don't think so. So it's kind of curious that, um, you know, if, if a believer fails, the plan of God is not thwarted. God is wise enough and smart enough and has it all worked out and he had the foreknowledge to know that the failure was coming anyway. So when he sets Moses aside and promotes Aaron, that's not as if God is, you know, winging it or somehow uh, flying by the seat of his pants or trying to, you know, a quarterback that's scrambling on a busted play or something. No, God knows all about it. And it's, it's marvelous the way that God has created a plan that includes the primary will and then under permissive will has other things to uh, to bring about, okay? Like Aaron rather than Moses. No one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called of God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he received a promise. He who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ didn't make himself a priest. The Father assigned him the priestly duties. And in in a lot of ways, this is a huge miracle. Because throughout the Old Testament, the king is from the tribe of Judah, the priest is from the tribe of Levi, How is Jesus now as the the lion of the tribe of Judah, how is he going to exercise any priestly function of any kind? It seems like a a puzzle that can't be solved until we learn from the New Testament that it is solved. That it's not a Levitical priesthood he's given. He's given the Melchizedek priesthood. And it's on a different basis, not the basis of a physical birth. Also notice, (laughs) I love this. So he said to him, you are my son today begotten you. Where's that from? It's from Psalm 2, okay? Just as he says also in another passage somewhere, okay, you know, like the author of Hebrews couldn't remember. I think he could remember. In any event, it's not vital that you cite the chapter and verse. If you forget, you forget. You, but you know the doctrine. You know the verse. It says in another passage, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Okay. And in that context, Psalm 110, it comes right on the heels of saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there's no question that it is the king seated at the right hand of the father who is also the high priest. He is also the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And boy, when that was mentioned, when David wrote that in Psalm 110, (laughs) you know, 400 years or whatever after Abraham, I imagine all the Jewish people must have been saying, Melchizedek? Seriously? (laughs) The guy that only shows up once in the Torah, he shows up in Genesis 14 and we never see him again? And now he's going to pop up in a psalm that David writes in Psalm 110? What's what's going on here? All right. Anyway, these are the blessings and, and, and what we're trying to glean, the whole purpose for through the Bible format, what we're doing, we're giving that big picture, Genesis to Revelation. We want to see the connections that can be found from Genesis 14 to Psalm 2 to Psalm 110 to Hebrews 5. And we, we want to have the big picture on the plan of God. The Alpha to Omega overview so that when we do go back, we, we have a, a clear view of the forest you know, through the trees, that so we don't lose the, uh, the big picture as we're wrapped up in the little details. So, I think we also just need to be humbled by all of these realities the, um, we don't choose for ourselves I didn't decide someday I wanted to be a pastor teacher God sovereignly established that by His grace from the foundation of the world and then He gives the spiritual gift at the moment of your salvation you don't even know what it is when you get saved how much doctrine do you have? none and then you get saved and then you start growing and you start to learn that wow God gave you a spiritual gift back on the day that you were saved. For me, I was a four-year-old little kid. I I didn't know I was a pastor back then. I'd learned later. All right. All that we are and all that we have are gifts of divine grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10. I don't plan on ever having a tombstone because I want to get raptured out of here. But if I ever do have a tombstone, gravestone, whatever you call it, epitaph. I was in a cemetery yesterday. It was fun looking out all over all those graves. By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Do you know what's sad? What's sad is when God pours forth his grace, and the recipient of that grace just becomes a lazy slug and doesn't do anything with it. But God poured out his grace on Saul of Tarsus, and he labored even more than all of them. And so he took that grace and just ran with it, became the the great apostle Paul, and the apostle of grace. Yet not I, can't brag about that either, not I, but the grace of God with me. Every day, every moment we continue to walk in grace and it's more testimony of of God's grace that makes that happen. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 15.10. I would love for that to be on a tombstone someday. The narrative of this chapter as we wrap up chapter 8 here I'm not sure how many of these verses I read. I think I left off with verse 12. Poured the anointing oil on his head, anointed him. Next Moses had Aaron's sons come near. So start with the high priest, then go to the sons, the priests. Everything is always hierarchical. Everything is always top down in a chain of command with a single point of accountability at the top. In this case, it's the high priest. In the church age, it's the pastor teacher in a congregation. Then he brought the bowl of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bowl of the sin offering. What sin did they do? They didn't commit any sin. But there will be a sin offering that will be offered in their consecration, in their ordination. Because they are sinners, and uh, as such, this offering is appropriate. Next, Moses slaughtered it, took the blood with his finger, put some of it around the horns of the altar, purified the altar, Then he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. He also took the fat that was on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat, and Moses offered it up in smoke on the altar. But the bowl and its hide and its flesh and its refuse he burned in the fire outside the camp just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. The laying on of hands. It's so important. We have it today in the church age. At the ordination, the laying on of hands. At uh, the ordination of a pastor teacher. Cut the ram into its pieces. Moses offered up the head and the pieces. The suet in smoke. We don't use suet in normal conversation. And some of these things too, it's useful to just to right click it and get yourself a, de- a, a definition Suet. It. Oh, it's another word for fat. Alright, and uh, open it up in your dictionary. Alright. After he had washed the entrails and his legs with water, Moses offered up the whole ram. And so the entrails and legs, they do get offered, but they've got to be washed first. Then they get offered, after they've been rinsed with water. Then the second ram, the ram of ordination... Had Aaron's sons come near, Moses put some of the blood on the lobe of their right ear and on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. (laughs) My ordination had none of this, okay? (laughs) Moses then sprinkled the rest of the blood around on the altar. All right, well, there we go. Get down to verse 36. And uh, we hit the bottom of the chapter. So the narrative of this chapter helps us to see the difference between the mediator and the high priest. I've stressed this before. I will keep stressing this. Um, I, I didn't understand this for years and years. And it finally, when we were going through the book of Hebrews a couple years back, um, it, it just hit me like a two by four. The mediator is not the high priest. Okay? Now, Jesus is both in the book of Hebrews... He is the mediator of the, of the new covenant for Israel in the millennium. He is the mediator of the new covenant and he's also the, the high priest of the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Jesus fulfills both typologies. However, they are separate typologies. They are separate issues. And we see it clearly separated here by the fact that you got Moses on the one hand and Aaron on the other. The mediator does not have to be the high priest. So don't confuse it. These are separate offices and conflating them is not possible in the law and it is problematic in the book of Hebrews. Okay? It's not possible to conflate them in the law because it's so obvious Moses is the mediator, Aaron is the high priest. But it is possible to conflate them in the book of Hebrews and I think people do that to their peril. I think they do that. Um, it's problematic to do that. And I think in doing that by conflating the mediator with the high priest, they look at Jesus as the high priest to say, well, that's happening here and now, right? Jesus is the high priest here and now. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. We have our priesthood. He has here, his priesthood. That's happening here and now. So by, t- by walking down that logical path, by saying the high priest is happening here and now, and then conflating it with the mediator of the new covenant, it just leads them to think, you know what? This new covenant must be happening here and now. And you see where that goes. And that, I think, is why we end up with churches named Grace Covenant. (laughs) Okay? Or other people uh, with the idea that we're in the new covenant here and now. We're not. I think back in the Middle Ages, it was the fourth century of the church that even the label, Old Testament, New Testament, were given to the two parts of the Bible. And we're paying the price for that ever since. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved. Thank you for the reminder, Father, that we're not going to learn it all today. But we're going to learn a little bit today, and a little bit tomorrow, and a little bit every day for the rest of our lives, Father, as we abide in the Word of God, as we study, as we grow. And Father, help us with everything we learn That we not be puffed up with pride as the knowledge puffs up. But Father the love is what edifies. I pray that we live what we learn so that we can bless one another in the body of Christ. I thank you and I praise you Father in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.